First Corinthians chapter 4, as we continue to go through this letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth. And Paul continues with his discussion on the contentious spirit that had motivated the divisions within the Corinthian church. Uh, Paul has dealt so far decisively with uh, their prejudices and preferring one preacher over another, where some said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas. And, and Paul was being accused of uh, jealousy. They were saying, well, Paul, the reason you don't want us to, to, to some factions to follow Apollos and some to follow Cephas is because you're jealous, Paul. You want everybody to follow you. And so Paul is trying to set them straight in this. And uh, so he has dealt with these prejudices that they had towards this. And in our passage this morning, in, cha in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul turns to dealing with their presumptions. Uh, they thought they had a right to, a, to judge Paul, a right to a judge Apollos and Cephas. And Paul says, no, judgment is God's prerogative, and it will be displayed at the judgment seat of Christ. He's already talked about this uh, earlier uh, in, in chapter 3 about how we would stand and give an account to God. And so look with me at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. He says, let a man consider us in this matter. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. Paul begins by showing what is required of God's servants. Now, the, the, the thrust of these verses right here could very much apply to those in the church who are pastors and teachers and such, but it applies to all of us. We're all servants of God. We're all called to be servants. And, and he, he points first, Paul does, to his own service. The word for servant literally means an under rower. And, and the, the picture that Paul is giving here is this right here. In Paul's day, they had the great ships. I know you, you've all seen them in the TV and movies and stuff, These uh, where you got all these men on each side, and they're rowing, you know, and doing this, and they're moving the great ships. And, and Paul is saying, that's all I am. I'm one of these lowly rowers. I'm just one of the, I'm not the man who walks around up and down with the whip beating on people and barking out orders. He said, I'm not the master that stands at the, at the front and, and, and makes sure that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Paul says, no, I'm none of that. He said, I am just an under rower in the boat. Uh, and it, it denotes someone in a subordinate capacity. So here we see the greatest of all the apostles. The greatest Bible teacher we've ever heard. The man who wrote the majority of the New Testament. And he's saying, look, I'm nobody. I'm just a simple servant of God. And, and Paul was a man who was under authority. He was under the authority of God. You know, I was at the gym the other day. And my trainer was talking to me. She said, so you're a pastor? And I said, yes. She said, so you don't have a boss. And I said, yeah. I said, I have a boss. <laughs> God. <laughs> and she thought that was funny. But that's what Paul's saying here. She's, he's saying, look, he said, I'm under authority. 
Let the Corinthians boast in their favorite preachers, he said. Paul wanted no part of it. He, like the others, was just one of those who belonged to Christ. And, and the Corinthians had lost sight of this. And listen, as a church, we can never lose sight of this. We must remember, I'm not the boss around here. I'm not the CEO of this church. I'm just a simple servant, but so are you. We're all in the same place. I just happen to stand up here and preach. But we all have gifts that God has given to us that we are to be uh, exercising within the church. We're going to talk more about that here in just a minute. But this is what Paul's saying. He said, look, I want no part of this where you're, you're taking these, these, these preachers and putting them up on a pedestal. Paul says, leave my name out of that. And Apollos and Cephas, who is Peter, would have said the same thing. They would have said, leave us out of this. So Paul had in mind here uh, the fact that I am just a servant. You know, it's an interesting thing that in the Bible, you never see the word leader. We always talk about those who are leaders in the church, but the Bible doesn't use those terms. The Bible uses the word servant, and actually, that's not even the right word. The right word is slave. You know, there's a difference in a servant and a slave. A servant is someone who serves and usually gets paid for it. It's his choice, but a slave is a slave. He has no choice. He serves because he has a master and he's called to serve. And Paul says, that's where we are. That's what I am. And so Paul endeavored uh, to pull to pull his oar in the boat to his master's command in, in harmony and in cooperation and in fellowship with all of those who serve. Paul says, if I am to be judged... Let me be judged by this, that I'm just a servant leader. I serve, I lead by serving. Jesus told his disciples, he said, whoever would be greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. Let him be the one who serves. You know, it's interesting. I, re I remember several years ago, I was at a church and we had this guest pastor come in, guest preacher, evangelist, and he preached on servant leadership. He preached on what, what it meant to be a true slave, a true servant of Jesus Christ. I mean, it was a great sermon. And after the sermon was over, we had a fellowship in the fellowship hall. And, and we were sitting there, and we were all eating and everything, having a good time. And, and it, it came time, the, the ladies began to go around, and some of the men too, and they were cleaning up. And uh, somebody was joking with him and said, well, you know, are you going to help us clean up? And he said, do you have any idea who I am? And you expect me to serve tables and wait on tables and clean up? He was serious. This is a man that had just preached an hour-long service sermon on being a servant leadership. But he was not displaying servant leadership. But Paul was dis was uh, he displaying this servantship? Uh, there in verse two, he says, "In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful." The word for stewardship here means someone who manages the affairs of a master's household. Paul had been given a great responsibility. Every preacher has been given a great responsibility. Listen. 
I told so I was talking with a guy last night who was a pastor who was here for our singing. I said, you know, being called to preach is the greatest calling in the world. There's nothing higher. It's greatest. But nobody in their right mind volunteers for it. Because I'll tell you, we, Paul, uh, James tells us, let not many of you be teachers, brothers, because we will be held to a higher standard, a higher accountability. And this is what Paul's saying. He says, look, I am a steward and I have been called. And the main thing that God calls me to is to be faithful. What am I to be faithful? I'm to be faithful to this Bible right here. I am to be faithful to God's word, not to preach what I want it to say, not to preach from an agenda, but to preach the word of God as it is. And as it is written, as I heard Stephen Lawson say the other day, have you ever been in a Bible study and somebody goes around and says, they, they read a verse of scripture and says, now let's go around and everybody tell me, what does this verse mean to you? And he said, I got news for you. It doesn't matter what this verse means to you. All that matters is what does the verse mean? And it can mean something different to one person and something different to somebody else. And this is where Paul's coming from. He said, I am just called. My primary responsibility is to be faithful. We are called to be faithful. I am not called to be successful. You are not called to be successful. As a church, we are not called to be successful. Well, let me rephrase that. In being faithful, we are successful. That's what we're called to do, and that's all we're called to do. And we have been entrusted with something by the Lord, and we will be held accountable for it. And we must understand that. Listen, there are many people in churches all across our country today, and I want to tell you something. If you were here this morning, if you were listening to me, you and you know that you have been saved, that you have been born again by the blood of Christ, I want to tell you something. When you were saved, you were gifted by the Holy Spirit. And that one of the gifts that is not on the list that Paul mentions is the gift of pew sitting. It's not there, but many have that gift. I want to tell you, God has gifted every single person that is saved in this church right here. And you must be exercising that gift to the edification of the whole church. And if you're not, I want to tell you something, you're going to give an account to God for it. Okay? That's, what, that's just what Paul tells us. He says, look, he says, you have been gifted. And Paul says, it is required that we be faithful. Not that we be good at what we do, but that we be faithful at what we do. Not that we count uh, the worldly kind of success at what we do, but that we be faithful. That's all God requires of us is to be faithful and obedient to what he's called us to do. And we have been trusted with this. And we will be held accountable at the judgment seat of Christ with what we've done for it. As a matter of fact, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 25. <clears throat> turn with me to Matthew chapter 25 and verse, let me see here. Verse 14, I want to read this parable that Jesus tells. Jesus said, for it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and handed over his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole, 
and the, in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you handed me, you handed five talents over to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you handed two talents over to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked slave, you wicked lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow, and I gathered where I scattered no seed. Therefore you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given." And he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now here's the thing. He gives it, the, the, the first two had taken the master's money and doubled it, but that wasn't the point. The point wasn't that they doubled it. The point was they were faithful to do what he called them to do. The third guy, he didn't do anything. He took it and hid it. He hid his talents, or hid the talents that the master had given to him, hid his money, and he didn't do anything with it. When the master came to give an account, which is what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians, when, when the master came and it was time to give an account for what they'd done, look at the first two. He said, well done, you good and faithful slave. But to the third one, the one who didn't do anything, he said, cast him out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That gives the indication that that guy wasn't saved at all because weeping and gnashing of teeth is always associated with hell. And so this is where Paul is trying to, to, to say to these Corinthians, he's saying, look, he said, stop playing these games where you elevate one preacher over another, where you think that because somebody has this spiritual gift, they're more spiritual than somebody else. He says, you need to understand, we're all going to be held accountable. Paul says, I'm no different than the rest of you. We're all going to be held accountable for what God has given to us. We are to be faithful stewards. And the preacher or teacher who disregards certain uh, scripture texts or takes and twists them to, to, to support their own ideas and their own, pronoun, uh, their own programs, they, they adulterate the word of God. I want to tell you, that's a dangerous thing to do. I, 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 I agree with one of the great Puritan preachers who says, God, break my neck rather than let me stand in that pulpit and preach your word unfaithfully. 
He said, I would rather trip and break my neck on the way to the pulpit than do that. And, and that's the kind of attitude that we must have, not just every preacher and teacher, but all of us, all of us do it. Paul says there in verse uh, 1 that he was called to be a steward of the mysteries of God. Uh, the word mystery that Paul uses here, it's a spiritual truth that was previously unknown until God had revealed it in the New Testament. There, there were several of these. Paul had a high sense of accountability because he was a steward of the mysteries of God. There are three divine mysteries in the New Testament that were uh, that were revealed to Paul by the Lord. Uh, there's the mystery of the cross that is expounded in the book of Romans. And it is... Uh, <clears throat> The truth of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is that, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, to what end? The glory of God alone. And that's what Paul expounded this mystery. See, that was a mystery to these people. When Paul wrote Romans and he said, look, you are not saved because you're good people. You're not saved because you don't do this and you do that. He said, if you're saved, you're saved because God chose you for, to, to, for salvation. And it is by his grace alone that you're saved, not by works of righteousness, which we've done but by his grace. And this was unknown. When, when Jesus preached this to the Pharisees, they were dumbfounded. They said, who are you? He said, you're nuts. And they hated him. So Paul preached this mystery. In, 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 uh, and the church in Corinth, they had departed from this truth. And God help any church that departs from that. This is what we've been talking about in the first three chapters. The thing that the church in Corinth had done is they had moved away from the message of the cross. The preaching of Christ crucified. And when you move away from that, everything falls apart. Everything goes away. So Paul, he expounded in the book of Romans this mystery. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul expounded on the mystery of Christ's church. It was a mystery in, in Ephesians. Paul uh, expounds on how the, the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile. And this was a mystery before that they had never heard, but it was revealed to the church through Paul, by God. And in the book of Thessalonians, Paul expounded on the mystery of Christ's coming, that, that, that one day the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise. And, and Paul, this was a mystery that these people did not understand. And Paul, he says, look, I am a steward of this, and I must be faithful. I want to tell you, when Paul preached to the Romans, and he preached to them, Grace alone, through Christ alone, he was hated for it. When Paul preached to the Ephesians and said, look, the Gentiles can come into the church as much as the Jews, the Jews hated him for it. And when he preached to the Thessalonians and says, the Lord is coming, they hated him for it. But Paul says, I don't care. I have to be faithful to what God has called me to do. Folks, you know I love you. You know that, right? Shake your head, yes. But I'm not here for you to like me. And then when I get to be a, any pastor or any preacher gets to a point where they stand up and they say things that, that you know, well, I'm not going to preach on. I, I've had preachers tell me this. I don't preach on that because they'd run me out of my church if I preached that. And I said, well, is it biblical? And he said, yeah, it's biblical, but I can't preach it. 
And he needs to understand he's going to give an account before God. So Paul invites the Corinthian church to evaluate him along these lines, along the lines of his faithfulness, his service, and his stewardship in what he had done. And by far the most important quality of any good steward, and we're all called to be stewards, every believer, and the most important quality is trustworthiness, is faithfulness. Can God trust us? Are we faithful to what he's called us to do? All right? Faithfulness is required. You remember the story of Joseph sold into slavery? And he goes to work for a man named Potiphar. And he's such a faithful worker that Potiphar makes him head over his whole household. Potiphar had a very sinful wife. She desired Joseph. And every day Joseph was be in the house doing whatever he was doing, his, his job was, and, and, and she was trying to seduce him. And Joseph would put her off time and time and time again. Finally, one day she could have no more. She just grabbed Joseph and she said, you know, she said, take me. And Joseph, he ran away. He ran away so fast. You know, Paul told Timothy, he said, flee youthful lust. That's what it's talking about Joseph did. Joseph ran so fast that she ripped his clothes and he ran off naked. But he got out of there as fast as he could. He did. Now, now here's what we would say. Now, Joseph, you should have waited and just told her the gospel. And Joseph, you should have tried to reason with her about this. Joseph said, no, I needed to get out of there because I needed to flee youthful lusts. But here's the thing. When Potiphar heard about this, he threw Joseph in prison because he thought Joseph had been unfaithful. Not unfaithful regarding his wife, but unfaithful in his stewardship. And, and many of us today are just like that. God has called us to, to, to a specific task, to a specific service. He has gifted every one of us. Some of us has more than one spiritual gift. Some have, uh, I would venture to say that every believer probably has more than one spiritual gift. Whatever it is, you have to determine what that gift is. But here's the point. Whatever that gift is, are you being faithful in the service of that gift? Are you using it? That's all that God's going to ask. He's not going to ask whether you were successful or good at it. Servanthood and stewardship and faithful are, are inseparable from faithfulness. There is to be no glory here. No ranking one above another. None. All right? Look at verse 3. Paul says, but to me. It's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing except against myself. For I am not by this acquitted. But the one, but the one who has examined me is the Lord. Having shown what's required of a servant of God, Paul now shows what's required of all of God's saints. Paul wasn't too concerned. Here, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you have judged my motives. And, and I want to tell you what Paul's basically saying here. He's saying, here's what you think of me, and I don't care. 
He said, because in the end, you're not the one who judges. Paul says, I don't even judge myself because human judgment is fallible. Paul wasn't too concerned with what they thought about him. And the word for examine here means judged. Now, now let me, let me be careful here with something. Let me explain something to you here. <clears throat> because I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Because one of the favorite things in the world today is, well, you can't judge me. The Bible says, do not, be, do not judge. That's not what the Bible says, by the way. And that's not what Paul is saying here. You have a right and a responsibility to judge me as your pastor. I have a right and a responsibility to judge you as congregation. We have a right and responsibility to judge one another as believers in Christ, as fellow workers, fellow servants of Christ. But listen, when we judge, we must judge with a righteous judgment. You can't judge the motives of my heart. I can't judge the motives of your heart. But here's what you can do. You can look at me and say, do I see love in his life? Do I see joy? Do I see peace? Do I see self-control? The fruit is the Spirit. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. Now somebody told me here a while back, said Jesus never called us to judge fruit. Well, then why did he say, by their fruit you will know them, if we're not supposed to judge them that way? So you, we are to judge one another in this regard. If you see me living out somewhere and you see me frolicking around with a woman that you know is not my wife, and you say, oh, it's none of my business, I'm not supposed to judge. Well, then you have done three things. You have let me down, you've let the church down, and you've let the Lord down. So we are to judge, and but that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is saying, look, he told these Corinthians, you are judging my motives. Paul says, I don't even do that. We cannot judge what someone's motives are. So Paul, uh, but, but he wasn't concerned with what they were doing, what they were saying. But I want to tell you, folks, sometimes we, we spend far too much time wondering and war uh, worrying what other people think about us. I heard a man one time, he was talking with this other man in the church, and they were not the best of friends. And one of them looked at him and he says, you know, you don't think too much of me, do you? And he said, that's not true. He said, I don't think about you at all. And that's what Paul's saying. He said, look, he said, I don't think about you in that way at all. He said, I don't care what you think. He said, I'm not here to satisfy your needs or desires. He says, I'm called to serve one master, and that is Christ. So we have here that, you know, Job was someone who spent way too much time uh, defending himself against his critics. And some of God's greatest saints have been criticized and unjustly accused by those who weren't worthy to tie their shoes. Job was one of those. Job's friends came to him, and, and they, Job spent way too much time defending himself before his critics. And Paul had no intentions of doing the same thing. In the last part of verse 3, he says, In fact, I do not even examine myself. Some of us are given to morbid introspection. You know, when King David was on the run from his son Absalom, 
<clears throat> he, he came across this man, and, and, and I can't remember the man's name, but it's in Second Samuel if you want to read it. And when it was all over with, Absalom had been killed, and David was on his way back to Jerusalem, and David told this man, because this man had been a great help to David. He brought them food, he brought them water, he gave them shelter and all that. And David said, you know what? Come with me. Come back to Jerusalem with me. You can live in the king's palace. You can eat from the king's table. He says, you can do anything in the kingdom you want. And the man said, oh, David, you know, I'm not worthy to do that. You know, I'm really a nobody, and I got all this stuff at home I need to be doing. And you know what? You you go on, David, and just I'll, I'll just stay. It was a false humility is what it was. Have you ever heard somebody like that? When, when you call on them to do something, and they say, oh, I'm not worthy to do that. I'm not very good at this, and I don't want to do it. That, that man that day with David, he talked himself out of a place in David's kingdom. And many times we as believers do the same thing. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I don't examine myself. Uh, and one of Satan's favorite tricks is to get us perpetually taken up with our faults and our sins and our shortcomings. Listen, I can stand here all day long and give you every reason in the world why I shouldn't be standing behind this pulpit and why you shouldn't listen to anything I have to say. But God said, I've called you to that, do it. And I'm called to be faithful. And so we have to be careful. Some believers become so taken up with themselves that they miss out on what God has called them to do. In verse 4, he says, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. Now this is a very important thing Paul says right here. Uh, we have Paul's reason for re refusing to engage in, in uh, constant introspection. Our consciences are terrible indicators of our moral and spiritual values. You've heard me say this many times, folks. Don't listen to your feelings. They will lie to you. Don't listen to you. You will lie to you. Anybody here never done that? I'll tell you, folks, there's been many times that I have, I have thought, you know, I've looked at myself and said, you know what? I'm a pretty good guy. I'm doing all right. And every time I say that, God says, okay, let me remind you. And then something will happen that will show me, okay, maybe I'm not that good a guy. So that's what Paul's saying here. He says, I am not uh, doing this. Our conscience, our feelings, they can, they can accuse or accuse us wrongfully at times and because all human judgment is fallible, especially self-judgment. The prophet Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Listen, one of the most popular sayings in our world today is follow your heart. I want to tell you something. You follow your heart, you're going to wind up in trouble because your heart is deceitful. And if Paul couldn't properly evaluate his own behavior, how much less could the critical uh, Corinthians evaluate him? Paul says, but the one who examines me is the Lord. The one who examines me is the Lord. I love, my, my favorite psalm is Psalm 139. And I love what the psalmist says. He says, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. 
Now, why didn't the psalmist just say, Lord, I have searched myself and I find no wicked way in me? Because that's exactly what he would have said. I found no wicked way in me. But he says, you search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way. And I promise you, if there's a wicked way in there, God will point it out. Whereas we have a tendency to ignore it. So the only competent judge of the motives of our heart is the Lord himself. Look at verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts. Being overcritical is a very common fault. Let's go back to Job's friends. Job's friends were overcritical of him. Job had had lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his land. I mean, Job was Donald Trump of his day. He was, and Bill Gates all put together. I'm talking about as far as wealth. I hope you know that's all I mean. That's the only way he was like them. But Job had it all. And in a single day, Job lost everything. And Job is sitting here in sackcloth and ashes, and, 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 and God allows Satan to touch his body. He has these terrible sore boils all over his body. He's in pain. And his friends come and say, oh, Job, you must have really sinned. <laughs> Job, you must have really made God mad for this to happen to you. Was that true? No. If you go back to chapter 1 of Job, we find that Job, God, God says, look, have you considered my servant Job? He's an upright man. There's nobody that loves me like Job is. So we, we learn from the book of Job that everything Job endured had nothing to do with Job at all. But yet Job's friends, and, I, and I've had people do this to me. I've seen it do, people do this. You know, somebody uh, all of a sudden loses a job or they, they don't have enough money or they have all these problems and spaces. Oh, you must have really sinned. What have you done? What did you do to make God mad? And, and we make false presumptions on that. And so being overcritical, Job's friends were overcritical. They, accused, uh, they concluded that Job must be a very great sinner, but yet the opposite was true. As a matter of fact, at the end of the book of Job, when God finally does speak and he speaks to Job's friends and he says, hey, I'm going to tell you guys something. I'm going to hold you accountable for what you've said. I'm going to hold you accountable for the false things you've said about me. You said I was doing this to Job because I was mad at him. He said, I wasn't mad at him at all. He said, you've accused me of doing this because Job has sinned. And he said, that's not how I work. And he said, I'm going to hold you accountable. So this is what Paul's telling these Corinthians. He's saying, you better be careful what you're doing. Uh, Paul tells us that we need to be prepared. Notice what he says here. He says, but wait until the Lord comes. Okay, now I'm going to read you some of the scariest words you'll find in the Bible. Who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of the hearts. All right, and I'm going to let that sink in just a minute. Do you understand what Paul's saying right there? Do you understand that there's going to come a day when I'm going to stand before God and I'm not only going to give an account 
to whether I was faithful to this word. I'm going to give an account to why I was faithful to this word. Do I do this because I love the Lord? Do I do this because I love you? Or do I do it because I like you all looking at me? I like to hear in the sound of my voice over the speakers. What is the reason I'm doing this? And Paul, and Paul says, look, the hidden things of the heart, the things that the nobody sees. And listen, there, there may be sin in my life you may never know. But there is one who does. There are things in your life you think nobody else knows. And, and, and we need to understand, as a believer especially, there is nowhere you ever go that God is not right there with you. There is Psalm 139. David said, before I even say it, you already know what the words are. God knows our thoughts. And this is Paul says to these Corinthians, he says, look, I'm warning you, you need to be careful here. He said, you're judging me according to my motives. You're judging me according to what I'm doing. And he says, you're going to give an account to God for this. We may hide our sins from one another, but we cannot hide it from the Lord. And our Dirty, guilty little secrets are well known to the Lord. I heard an old preacher say one time, he said, keep in mind that a guilty secret on earth is an open scandal in heaven because God knows all of it. The Lord knows our hearts. The Lord knows our thoughts. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that God knows your heart better than you do. He knows mine better than, than I do. That's why the psalmist said, search me. You search me, O God. Do you have the nerve to say that to God like the psalmist did? God, search me. See what's in there. Bring to light that which is there. But one day, all of this will come to light, Paul says. You know, a good example of this is man by the name of Judas. None of the other disciples knew who Judas was. As far as they knew, he was just as saved as they were. As far as they knew, Judas was, I mean, he was the treasurer. He took care of giving to the poor. You remember when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they all began to ask, Lord, is it me? Is it me? They, they never even thought it would be Judas. When Jesus told Judas, he says, what you do, go and go do quickly. They thought that Jesus was just sending him on an errand. They didn't know what he was doing. They were shocked when they found out it was Judas. But here's the point. Jesus said, did I not choose you 12? And one of you is a devil. Jesus knew from the very beginning who Judas was. Judas never fooled Jesus. And I may fool you, you may fool me, but we cannot fool the Lord. And Paul is saying that to these Corinthians, uh, this church in Corinth. He was saying to them, look, you need to understand. He said, we don't have the right to or the ability to judge one another's hearts or motives, but God does. And Paul says, not only will he judge mine, but he will judge yours as well. But we can take heart because Paul says there at the end of verse 5, and then each one's praise will come to him from God. Every single believer has something of Christ within them. 
God alone can give the proper estimate of in a future reckoning day. And it is destructive to cause divisions in the church by honor, by arguing over who should be honored. And such attitude, attitudes of division have destroyed many churches and continues to do so. We would do well to heed Paul's warnings and to look to receive praise from God for being faithful. But listen, here's something important you need to understand. You know, when I said God has gifted every one of us with gifts of the Spirit, and those gifts are to be used and exercised in the function of the local church, you see, my gifts are not for me, they're for you. Your gifts are not for you, they're for everybody else. But many believers, professing believers, sit in churches Sunday after Sunday and say, Preacher, give me the message, let me go home and eat. Other than that, I don't have time, I don't have the desire, I don't have anything to be involved in the church and doing all of this. You know, there's an old saying that says you usually have about 10% of the people doing 100% of the work. And that's not the way God designed it. And I'm going to give an account for how I've used the gifts that God's given me. You're going to give an account for how the gifts. But listen, let me ask you a question. Are you a servant? of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is, are you saved? Do you know that you have believed on the Lord Jesus and, and, and believed in Christ alone? You cannot trust in your good works. You cannot trust in the fact that you commit, don't commit this sin or don't commit that sin. You cannot trust in anything except Christ crucified. This is what the Corinthians had moved away from. And as a result, they had begun to look at one another and judge one another. And, and some were walking around with this spiritual pride. They, they had uh, open sexual sin in their church. They had sin. For the rest of this letter, Paul's going to point out sin after sin after sin after sin. And it all goes back to one thing. They had moved away from the message of of Christ crucified. Because you know what that message means? That message means that if I have been saved, I have died. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, when you understand the message of Christ crucified, you understand you are dead to sin, dead to self, dead to the world, and alive to Christ. Dead men do nothing. Nothing. And when we understand that the message of the cross is this, that I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. 
It's not about me. And one of the things that we understand about salvation is, is, is we know that Jesus did not come to save me so I'd have a better life. He didn't come to save me so I'd be a better person. He came to save me so that he receives glory. That's why he saved us. And so Paul tells these Corinthians that they need to heed the warnings and understand that, that, that a servant is called, a steward is called to be faithful. Are you being faithful? Are you being faithful with whatever gifts God has gifted you with? What are you doing with it? Where are you using it? And he says, let me tell you, he says, are you, are you going around judging the motives of others' hearts? When there's only one who can give an adequate judgment, and that's God. Paul says, look, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to give an account for our life. Not just the preachers, not just the missionaries, but everybody. Are you prepared for that? I pray that we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the message of your word. Oh God, we are so guilty at times of judging one another, of exalting one person over another. God, forgive us. Lord, may we understand and humble ourselves before you that we're all just under rowers, called to just be obedient and faithful to our master. Lord, I, I pray that if there's one listening that does not know Jesus Christ, that has never truly bowed the knee in confession and repentance before him, that they would do so, Father, that you would call those that are yours to yourself.